Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Okay, so I think I think we're doing this live, maybe. Who knows? I think we are. Hey, we're live. Look at that. If you're listening to us live, hello. Welcome to the show. Uh, you're listening to Human Factors Cast, maybe even watching us on YouTube stream live, making fools of ourselves, you know, the usual. Um, Hadn't is... gotten too foolish yet, so it's <laughs> early now. It's early now. We still got a little ways to go. Uh, happy Labor Day, um, everybody, and here in the States. Uh, it's like uh, instead of a weekly podcast, we're now like a monthly podcast. Yeah, it's a, it's uh, a once in a blue moon podcast is what it's turned uh, into. Inadvertently. I mean, there's been some things that happen, but welcome everybody to the stream. We got some things to talk about today. We're going to talk about these robotic shorts that scientists have developed to make it easier to walk and run. Uh, we're going to take talk, take, take talk, tick tock, a look at this new hand tracking algorithm that could be a big step in sign language recognition. We're going to talk about some augmented reality glasses that may help people with low vision better navigate their environment. And uh, climate activists are planning to shut down Heathrow Airport by flying drones. So lots of fun stuff to talk about. But, Blake, you and I have been off the air for a little bit here, and I think we kind of owe it to everybody to explain why. So I guess, what, two weeks ago, I was on travel. Um, yeah, that's which, right, because you are on, like, extended travel, right? Yeah, this yeah. kind of plays into my banter a little bit. Um, but, you know, without going into too much details, I was on travel. Um, and uh, I think last week we had some technical difficulties, and you were sick. My battery on my computer died, and... and All sorts of silliness, but we're yeah. back in the studio, we're back. at least, we're to back. do a little we're podcasting. Back. We're back. You know, it's, it's really hard when we don't, like... You know, no, no one spots us to do this. <laughs> so it's like, if things just don't work out, it uh, becomes the sunken cost thing where we literally have to go tend to our families and uh, personal lives. So thank you all for understanding. But we're here. We're back. We're here to talk some human factors. So uh, you know what? I think we should get into some banter here. So, Blake, I mentioned that I was on travel. Um, and just due to some circumstances that I won't get into here, I was kind of stuck in a hotel room for a week with nothing to do. Um, and that's kind of sucky yeah because it's like being stuck somewhere is one thing like you know if you got snowed in somewhere or whatever yeah but like for you you literally you, you had to kind of hang on your hotel room couldn't go outside really to. for like specific hours during the day yeah for for reasons that i i'm not going to mention here i had to stay inside the hotel room for um to, to be available basically sure. in case anything happened uh but yeah i couldn't go out and venture the city i was in dc so it was like kind of uh just Man, cabin fever's real. Let me just put it that way. Cabin fever is real. Like, I think that is the craziest piece to me. Yeah, I mean, what? So why was it so bad? Because I would feel like you might be able to figure out things you could do while you were in the hotel room. But it was like, did you exhaust, you know, being able to watch stuff on YouTube, like live streaming Human Factors cast? Or, uh, I mean, did you... Or was it the fact that like you felt like you had to be kind of just sitting and waiting, waiting for work type stuff or whatever? Um, you know, I had to be waiting for work work stuff. Um, I also I, I did watch a lot of movies um, and a lot of you know YouTube whatever. I I don't know, man. It there's just like nothing you could do because I I technically had to be alert and waiting for. Like, I was on the East Coast, and we're here based on the West Coast, and so there's a lot of communication that was happening between the two, and I just had to be available, and it just didn't work. 
Gotcha. Yeah, it's kind of funny how we still suffer from such a communication lag, like across coast, yeah. with so much technology that we have, and just like the ability to basically always be on, really, right? Yeah. I mean, no matter what you're doing, you can always kind of like access email or whatever. But even like still, communication across time zones is a difficult task to get past. Yeah. So, but, but what's going on with you, Blake? What's what's going on in Blake's world? Man, it's been a whirlwind of a couple of weeks. So, I mean, I well, went up to, um, <laughs> yeah. So I went up to san francisco or san jose one of the two for like somewhere up there yeah for like silicon valley's comic-con which was nuts because that was just an experience that i had never have had before it was like everything extreme nerd for an entire weekend um and then last week i actually got to fly up to seattle and kind of hang out um, for a couple of days for a friend's wedding or more specifically elise's friend's wedding so it's been a wild couple of weeks of travel and then getting sick and then traveling again Oh, okay. So, so you, uh, you've been traveling. So have I. That's fun. Yeah, it's absolutely. <laughs> it's so fun. Do you have any like, any, any human factors? He banter about uh, air, aircraft travel. Yeah. Or? So this is this is actually kind of funny, and I don't understand how it happens. And I, I meant to like ask a flight attendant or ask somebody that works for a specific airline if they knew. And if anybody from that's worked in aviation listens to the podcast has any kind of ideas, let me know. But so, Nick, you've flown a bunch. You know what traveling's like. You can either, you know, get an electronic passport or pass card or boarding pass on your phone, or you can print one out from a kiosk at, you know, whatever airline you're at. And so you take you take these boarding passes that you have, whether it's electronic or it's paper, and then to get on the plane, you have to scan it. And there there's some amount of information that is presented to the person that's operating the machine, the person at the kiosk who works for the airline that tells them, I don't know what, I have no idea what the display tells them when you scan your pat, your boarding pass. But I found this interesting on two flights. So somebody ended up on one of my flights where they weren't supposed to even be on that plane. How did they get there? I don't know. And I don't really understand how that even happens. You have to, because if you if you have to scan something, because I've heard before, like it goes off, it'll beep or whatever. Right. Like an, it'll, it'll give, give you some a, negative sound. Yeah. To let you know that okay, maybe I'm in the wrong place. But for for this particular instance, this is not a knock against the airline. This is just an observation that I don't really know how it came to be. But somebody got on a Southwest flight, which is typically it's typical for you have open seating, right? Right. Well. This particular person got on the plane with a ticket for the wrong, like, airline completely because they were coming to somebody's seat and saying, hey, you're in my seat. Like, I have, you know, whatever seat number and letter. And the guy looked at him and was like, that doesn't make any sense. It's a Southwest flight. And it turns out, like, he just was on the complete wrong airline going to the same location. But how in the world, like, you were able to bypass a barcoding system, whether it's electronic electronic or not yeah and tsa yeah and nobody stop you i thought that was kind of insane like not really from the security perspective like you still have to go through a lot of the measures and that kind of stuff but the fact that you know you as like a person that's traveling maybe had a, having a stressful day or it's like something you don't like to do you find right. yourself in the wrong place wrong time maybe you miss a flight all because there there's either like bad qa somewhere or those systems are just like red light green light and you can Maybe maybe they make mistakes. Maybe they're very simplistic. But I just found it interesting. I couldn't believe, like, of all all the amazing kind of, like, systems within systems that exist within aviation, from, like, people to aircraft to just, you know, the automated systems that keep everything moving in an airport itself, 
how this small thing, how you could actually end up in the, on the wrong aircraft for the entirely wrong, um, what do you call it, airline. That's crazy. That's, that's just re- really crazy to me. You'd, you'd think there'd be people paying closer attention to that or systems that, like you said, would, would at least notify the people who are taking care of that thing. You know, I, I don't know. It's crazy to me. We also know that like people are bad at these kind of tasks that we have them doing, like just basically watching... It's, it's kind of a bad vigilance task. Like however many people that get on an airplane, I don't know what the typical numbers are. Something between, like, I don't know, 120 and 180 people. Yeah, that probably sounds And right. you're just, like, scanning something, looking at, taking a cursory glance, maybe just using the auditory cue. If the system doesn't catch it, you've probably been doing this all day. You're right. not going to catch any kind of abnormality or, like, maybe looking at their phone. Because if you've, I don't know, if you travel, do you use like the electronic boarding pass like your phone? I do. So what I've noticed, most people most people that have them scanned, like nobody's looking at it. They're spending more time just trying to figure out how to hold it at the right angle to get the QR code to actually scan. Okay. So there's not a whole lot of information that people are paying attention to on that screen. See, so uh, the aircraft carrier that I usually fly on um, has something to kind of in place to, to, to at least solve some of this problem. So what they do is they make sure to greet every passenger and say, thank you, Mr. Rome, for, you know, your service or your your, your, um, your patronage. patronage. Thank you, Mr. Rome. And they say your last name. And that way, you know, they're reading whatever popped up on their screen that validates like, yes, it matched in their database and is not going to be a, uh, you know, on the wrong flight or something. Yeah. Uh, and there's a couple of airlines that I've flown on. I think I think Virgin's one of them. They're like, when you get on the plane, they like make it a point to like look at your ticket and say like, oh, okay, so you're like over here on the left. This is usually for bigger bigger aircraft, like I'm flying right. international or whatever, and you have multiple lanes. Um, but that's like another way around it. Somebody, as soon as you get on the plane, you're just like, okay, you're definitely not in the right place, or you're in the right place. Here's where right. you go. Um, it's just it's kind of just funny in some ways because I, I think. I think ultimately it it could have just been a goof, like a one-time thing. may not be something that happens all the time, but it was just funny to notice while traveling. Yeah. yeah. But that's all basically right. all that's been going on with me, man. Travel-wise, it's been, been fun. Chaotic, but fun. I have one other thing that I'd like to talk about. You know what it is. It happened uh, yesterday. <laughs> we'll talk about that on Infinite. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, yeah, I don't quite want to talk about that one yet. Anyway, uh, you know what time it is, Blake? What time is it? Actually, I, I do. It's like... Five? Yes, it's Human Factors News. It is time for Human Factors News. This is a part of the show where we break down all the news stories relating to the field of human factors as long as it as long as it's human factors adjacent, you know, it's fair, fair for us to talk about. I don't know. <laughs> That's what this should be called. Human factors adjacent human cast. Human factors adjacent cast. Uh anyway, yeah, we got some news here. So uh, why don't we go ahead and get into this first story? What do we got up first, Blake? Let's take it away. All right. So Harvard researchers have developed a new powered exosuit that can make you feel as much as a dozen pounds lighter when you're walking or even running. So the system is built around a pair of flexible shorts and a motor worn on your lower back and could benefit anyone who has to cover a large distance by foot, including recreational hikers, military personnel, and even rescue workers. According to the RoboShorts researchers, this system differs from previous exosuits because it is able to make it easier to both walk and run. So the challenge here is when you're running, your center of mass moves like an inverted pendulum, while whereas where you're running, you actually move like a spring mass-loaded system. That's the ultimate challenge when you're going between these two modes. 
So the system needs to be able to accommodate both of them and, and then sense when the wearer's gait is changing between walking and running. So the, exos, the exosuit works by connecting motors worn on the lower back to the wearer's thighs through a series of actuation cables. And by applying force to these cables, the system's then able to assist your glute muscles in powering your legs up and down. So the whole system is powered by this waste motor battery, which has enough range for about five miles at the moment. So to actually assess the reduction in effort that's when using these robo shorts, researchers had people run and walk on a treadmill while wearing the shorts, measuring the amount of oxygen they consumed while breathing. Their results indicated that the metabolic cost of walking and running reduced between 9.3 and about 4% for both running and walking without actually wearing the shorts. And that change in effort is equivalent to feeling about 16.3 or 12.6 pounds lighter, whether you're running or walking. So as well as helping people who need to cover large distances, such as military personnel or rescue workers, the team hopes that the system could also be used one day to help anyone with a disability that has restrictions on their walking. Nick, this is crazy. This is basically a pair of shorts that allows you to walk or run. Yeah. And feel way lighter. I think the thing that I'm most jazzed about with this one here is the mobility, right? We've seen exoskeletons that allow you to lift more strength. We've seen exos or we've seen um, uh, sort of these exo devices. I don't know. I'd want to pick Chris's brain, Chris Reed. I want to pick pick his brain about whether or not uh, little devices that hook onto your shoes are considered exoskeletons because we've seen those that have like helped augment speed and um yeah you know uh the the what am i thinking of the 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 effort required to like actually run so we've seen like attachments body attachments call them exosuits or whatever uh that do augment already but this is cool because this has modes right so this is not just running this is walking as well and the system can detect whether or not you're doing what you know which mode you're in and so that's really cool because each mode obviously requires different uh, things, right? Like, I would imagine you need less force when you're running because you have more, or maybe it's more force. I don't know. I feel like you might need more force. That'd be, I think to that's pull your leg back. Yeah, I mean, because you're, you're basically, yeah. like, shooting off of one leg and then landing another shooting off of that same leg. Um, I'm not, but I'm not completely sure. And I didn't, I didn't really ever think about that. Maybe the problem between transitioning between walking and running on something like this would be just the transition between the two. But the fact that this system through sh- shorts, which is another, which is another question that I would like to either ask researchers or people like Chris Reed, who actually know more about exoskeletons than we do is like, why, when is there like a decision to use, you know, shorts versus full leg? Um, Because I'm assuming it's probably the range of motion that you need to go through. But in this case, like, why shorts? Right. Um, Because there's so many there, at least from my understanding of biomechanics, there's so many more systems that are in place when you're running that might be benefited from, like, having these, like, actuator cables attached to. Um, But who knows? It's still still a kind of insane concept. But the thing I didn't really think about either was the fact that it's more about, like, feeling that you're lighter so that you have this perception that I no longer weigh as much, so going five miles is not a big of a deal metabolically for me, or I don't get as tired doing it. Yeah, that's pretty cool, because if you think about the training aspect, right, like, what what is the effect of training with something like this? Psychologically, you know you can do it, 
But physically, you've been augmented this entire time. So what happens when you take away that physical augmentation? Are you still able to perform the same because you know psychologically you're able to do it? The, the intersection between um, the, the body and physics and psychology and where this all meets is really interesting to me. I'd be curious to see kind of how this affects performance. Yeah, because if you think about... Because, of course, this is even in the article somewhere, but it's also mentioned by name. I mean... You, I could imagine somebody like DARPA picking this up and using it for some kind of like soldier enhancement or whatever. And they also talk about the this could be useful for military personnel. So I would assume that that changes how you train people because you definitely want people to be able to do do whatever exercise that is expected of them at the weight capacity they're supposed to be operating at. Right. Because this thing breaks down. Then one you're now dealing with right now, I think it's about a 40 pound system. So it, you're dealing with now extra weight on top of you because you right. probably can't just leave it in the field, if you will. Um, so I, I would feel like you almost have to over train and be able to complete certain steps. And then like when it's go time or when it's when it really counts using a system like this, then you're you're kind of over prepared and you understand that you already can do this. And this is just really it's really just augmenting you not doing the work for you. But so then you also run into the problem of, I don't know, does it? Does it over enhance you so much that it's weird for you, or, you, or maybe you mis-execute movements or something right. like that? So, so like let's 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 take this example, right? Someone's training for a three k, the very 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 small kind of um, commitment, right? Three uh, k, and so they they would train. Correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're saying is they would train up until the point where they could do this three k reliably, um, and then. Let's say the day of the 3K comes and they put on this device. I, I'm saying, like, just in general, not this would never fly in an actual 3K. Sure, yeah. But, like, they, they know they can do the 3K and this is just making it easier for them. Um, is that kind of what you're saying? Is that. Yeah, to some degree, right? Because it's kind of a funky trade off. Like, when you think about it from that perspective, maybe the hiker is the better option to look at because, like, the 3K option, right, we're talking about now adding something that's heavier than you're normally used to, so you haven't trained with something extra on you. Right. Because if I remember right from the article, it's only about, like, it's about a 40-pound system, and it's making you feel, you know, 16-ish pounds lighter. So okay. Is, is that including the system itself or imagine. not I'd so? Ima I'd imagine it's net, what, 56 Okay, Pounds so that, make, that makes more sense. So then, so then, yeah, in that case, right, so if you, you know, train for the 3K or whatever, and then you, on race day, put this thing on, you should be able to do it no problem. Right. Um, and probably, I guess, have a faster time. But that's the thing Maybe. I'm not quite understanding. Here well, you would use less energy, right? Because... Yeah, it, well, so you, you could use less energy if you keep your same pace, but I would assume if you feel lighter, you might expend more if you're in a kind of, if you're in a race. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's all interesting. See, the, the initial uh, way that I was thinking about this was almost from the other way, right? Like, let's say you train for a 5K. Yeah. And with the device on. Train for the 5K with the device on. And psychologically, you know you can do that 5K. But what happens when you take off the device? Like, you know psychologically that you can do it. However, it's not as easy as when you've trained for it. Or, or maybe maybe you go and do a 3K. Right, so you train for a 5K with the device on. You go and do a 3K, which is less performance. You know you can do a 5K psychologically. Is the 3K going to give you no problems because you know you can do a 5K and you've been training for it with this device that has been augmenting your performance? 
Like, I don't know. That 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 way feels less likely to happen to me for me, but I'd be curious in the effects. Yeah, I don't know. Cause I it's it's funny what your psychology can do to you, right? Like because I'm sure there's there would be instances where if somebody believes that even with training with the system, they, they can, you know, run the 5K, no problem. And so they, they step into do a 3K and they see no difference. They don't feel any more fatig- any more or less fatigued because they have some psychological effect that's allowing them to feel like, hey, I can do this. I know I can do this. I don't need to worry about it versus taking away the system that's allowing somebody to, you know, get to the physical um, outreaches of running however far they're running. And then you remove that and just they can no longer do it because they're their strength just isn't there or their endurance just isn't. Yeah. So I, I feel like you'd see both. Yeah. Don't right. know, though. Okay. So why don't we go ahead and get into our next story here? Like, what do we got up next? All right. So this is pretty interesting stuff. So the ultimate mission for companies that create sign language translation systems is to allow the millions of people that use sign language to easily communicate with not just other signers, but anyone. So now a new hand tracking algorithm from none other than Google's AI lab might be a big step in making this ambitious type of software everything it originally promised to be. So by using nothing but a smartphone and its camera, Google's AI Labs new system creates a highly detailed map of a person's hand that it can track for communication. So the current state-of-the-art approaches rely primarily on powerful desktop environments for for interference, and Google's method achieves real-time performance with just a mobile phone and even scales to when multiple hands are being used. The Google system is actually training on a person's palm rather than taking in the dimensions of an entire hand. But then a separate algorithm takes those dimensions and looks at the fingers as well as the palm, assigning 21 coordinates on the knuckles, the palm, and the fingertips to help process what the hands are doing or what positions they're in. There's likely still a long way to go before truly effective sign language recognition because keep in mind that communication through sign language does rely not just on hand gestures but also facial expressions and other cues much like typical language but developers have open sourced their code in hopes that others will find innovative ways to improve upon what they've already created so nick this is something i don't know a whole lot about but it sounds like an awesome application of both like you know ai plus their I, th- I think this is, I think it's called Media Pipe, which is Google's kind of AR playground that they have that this is built into. So it's just a really crazy system that is basically from just using a phone, able to kind of process the information from your hand movements and try and translate that into how people communicate with each other. Yeah, it's amazing to see kind of what, what uh, visual recognition technology can do now, right? This is This is cool for a variety of reasons. I mean, we talk about accessibility a lot on this show, right? This is now um, going to be able to potentially capture some of this ASL or or just um, sign language in general. It doesn't mention ASL, does it? I don't think so, no. Not specifically. So it's just sign language in general. So I have no doubt that in a few years here, we will have fully mapped the sign language. the sign language, like the, the language, language of sign. Yeah. Uh, only because like, if you think about where we're at now, this is a, a big advancement. And, um, you know, like you said, there is that facial recognition piece and facial recognition has even come a long way too in the last couple of years. So I have no doubt that they'll intersect and, and you'll be able to hopefully um, have this whole library of, of things. And, and what this does for uh, a variety of uh, different 
What this does is it could potentially uh, auto-generate closed captions for people that may be easier to understand than... I don't know. I, I don't, I would like to t talk to a, uh, well, that's crass. I would, I would like to conversate with somebody who, um, who can't hear and who predominantly, uh, talks via sign language or through text and to see which is their preferred method. If actually translating Sign language into closed captions would be something useful for them. I mean, I, I can think of a lot of applications uh, for this specific um, visual recognition system. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it's exciting. I think accessibility has come a long way. And I just love that we're trying to include all the, all the different groups out there. Yeah, it's super ironic. So I read the... I read the headline and then I read the first few sentences before it ever mentions Google AI or their labs, I guess is a better way to put it. We're the ones actually developing the system. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. It's basically going to be Google Translate for people with sign. And then, of course, it was like a Google product, which was too funny to me. But I, I think you're right. Between like over, I feel like, how long are we doing this podcast? Over two years? Three years. Between, okay, so three years. <laughs> three <laughs> so, years since we started this thing. So three over the three years that we've done, like there has been so many improvements, and I'm pretty sure a lot of them are markedly from Google in facial recognition software and how it can be used. And I, and I mean, with the fact that like Apple phones and a lot of other phones and even like my computer now will ask me to authenticate things with my face, I can only imagine like, recognizing facial gestures and then hand movements. I don't think that's going to be that far away or make or not too far in the future so that people can almost be using like a sign language translate system. Cause I think it would be awesome in a lot of ways for people that don't know sign language one, cause it helps you communicate with somebody who you've never talked to. And you can also use it to your own benefit to learn a different language. Yeah. Um, so you can, you know, have kind of that open communication with anybody but at the same time, I feel like this has kind of wider applications too outside of just accessibility. Just the fact that if you're mapping facial expression and hand movements, how that kind of stuff can be translated into, you know, how you map out bodies in VR. Yeah. Anything well, like that. Well, I mean, also think about things like uh, Google Drive, Google Docs, things like that. If maybe it's faster to sign than it is to type for some people. And so... Uh, like talking, right? Talking is often faster than typing in Absolutely. a lot of cases. And so, you know, text-to-speech has gotten a lot better than it was. Uh, it still has a long way to go. But I'd imagine something like the uh, translation between the hand motions. I'm trying to, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to map them. So the, the translation between the hand motions and actually uh, putting them onto something like Google Drive, where maybe you just sit in front of a camera and sign, you know, oh, sorry, the camera's over here. You sit in front of the camera and sign, Spider-Man, and then um, it makes that in the Google Drive, and then you can actually just, you know, move your fingers, and that's more of a, a, a quicker way, a quicker input methodology is what I'm trying to say for things like typing up documents. Absolutely, yeah. Because, I mean, I, f I feel like I rely on just, like, voice-to-speech stuff all the time, especially on my phone. Oh, yeah. On my phone, I use it a lot. Because um, I'm, I'm a terrible typer with my thumbs. I yeah, well, it's we've been reduced from, you know, all the digits to just yeah. the thumbs. It's awful. Yeah. I use swipe or the uh, the, the text-to-speech. Oh, I there use, you go. I prefer text-to-speech. I do, uh, too. 
And then when I'm in public, I swipe. Yeah, sometimes when I'm in public, I feel weird talking oh, to myself yeah. or talking to my phone. I was about to say, you're one of those guys that talk to yourself in public. I totally like, am. Like, I'll do that normally, but I have a weird time talking to my phone for some reason. Message, Blake. Podcast tonight, eggplant emoji. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, we'll come back to that eggplant emoji. <laughs> you have any other closing thoughts on this one here? No, but if anybody's a de- well, I guess I do. If I'm saying that, so if anybody's a developer, be sure to go check out some of the either media pipe, the AR kit, or like star this thing on GitHub because it's it's something cool to work on and maybe something lucrative. And if you read translated uh, transcripts of the podcast, we'd be interested to hear from you too. Um, how this would impact your life? Maybe, ah, there you go. Maybe. Sorry, I just thought of one more thing before we move on. Um, maybe. You can also, like you said, that application to virtual environments. What if you had a virtual avatar um, that signed, you know, to someone as as like a translation piece? You could almost put like a virtual avatar. Like think about it in a YouTube video, right? Google YouTube. So you have almost a virtual avatar instead of closed captions, a virtual avatar in the in the corner of the screen that then uh, basically takes what is being said and reverse engineers the capture to produce these hand motions in a virtual environment, just overlaid on the video that you're watching. There you go. So, uh, and that's interesting. I wonder if that is a more effective communication method yeah, than just, I just don't know. I don't know. Like closed caption. That's nuts. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll be back to break the rest of the news stories right after this short break. Human Factors Cast strives to bring you the best in Human Factors chatter every week. We pack news, interviews, reviews, and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on. But we can't do it without you. You see, the Human Factors Cast network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners. That's why we're giving back to our supporters on Patreon, now more than ever. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is human factors, etc. We're always updating our rewards, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all, and remember, it depends. All right, and before we continue on, I just want to thank all of our friends over at The Verge, Interesting Engineering, Medical Express, and Gizmodo for all of our news stories this week. If you want to follow along, you can, uh, you know, we post all those links to the original articles uh, down below, and we also put them in our Slack, too. So, yeah, check those out. Lots of fun. Uh, Speaking of Human Factors Cast Infinite, we are back in the podcasting seats tonight for Human Factors Cast Infinite. We're going to talk about a couple things. That happened to us over the last couple of weeks. Uh, yeah, stop by for some good fun. <laughs> stop by for a few laughs. Uh, good laughs. Uh, some some sad stuff. Some sad, some sad stuff. Some sad stuff. Some some crime. We got a little bit of crime we got in there. A little bit of crime. We got fraud. Fraudulent crimes. Fraudulent crimes, but we also got that scary burglary. Crimes. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's some uh, good stuff. It's some good stuff. You guys should join us. Uh, anyway. CSI Human Factors Cast. Uh, you can do that. Oh, we also, you know what? We also, I feel like I. Also. Also, also, I feel like I need to mention this. We have also started this new thing for our Patreons where if you don't like listening to our voice, but like 
the commentary that we provide on just the news stories, you can get that in Human Factors Cast Infinite. Actually, it's not infinite. It's uh, the Patreon feed. Like, what is it, like it's the like, $1 tier or something? Yeah, for $1 a month, $1, you could listen to us less. We're all... <laughs> I don't know how this works. You pay a dollar, you get a separate RSS feed, and it's just the news. Let's say you have a shorter commute. You don't want to hear us bullshit about uh, cat stuff, cat stuff, Dog or Star stuff. Wars, or, or airplane problems, or uh, airplane problems. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't care hear... about us personally. You don't want to hear about any of that. Or alternatively, if you love that stuff, we have infinite for you too. So here's the thing. We're trying to get everybody to pay us. We're trying to get the people who don't like us to pay us. We're trying to get the people who love our banter to pay us. We just got something for everybody in there. That's, we do. That's what we're doing. And if I we think, do that, we can just podcast all the time. Yeah, we can just podcast all the time. Anyway, it's a truncated version. It's about 20 minutes, 20, 30 minutes for all the news stories. Uh, we cut out all the commercials. We cut out all the banter. There's no it came from Reddit. No either. Reddit. It's just short, sweet, to the point. Well, it's to the point you and I can get. As to the point as you and I can get. Like this stuff, you won't even hear it there. You don't want to hear this? You go in there. You don't you have it. Pay a dollar. You don't have to listen to this ever again. <laughs> you see what I'm doing here, Blake? Pay I'm trying a to dollar. <laughs> you don't have to listen to it. I'm trying head. to extort our listeners. Uh. No. Okay. Well, Blake, we got two more news stories up this week. What do we have up next? All right. So up next, nearly one in 30 Americans over the age of 40 experience low vision or a significant visual impairment that can't be corrected with glasses, contact lenses, medication, or even surgery. But in a recent study with people with low vision from Keck, Keck School of Medicine of UFC, USC, researchers found that adapted augmented reality or AR glasses can improve patients' mobility by 50% and their grasp performance by 70%. So the current wearable low vision technologies using VR can be difficult to use or they just require extensive training. However, researchers from Tech Medical School, they took a different approach of employing assistive technology technology to enhance, not replace natural senses. The team adapted these AR glasses that project bright colors onto the patient's retinas corresponding to obstacles that may be in their purview. So participants actually wore these adaptive AR glasses as they navigated through an obstacle course based on a U.S. Food and Drug Administration validated, validated functional test. And using a video of each test, researchers recorded the number of times patients collided with op obstacles, as well as the time it, it took to complete the obstacle course. So patients overall averaged fewer than 50% less collisions with the adapted AR glasses, and patients were also tasked with grabbing a wooden peg against a black background located behind four other wooden pegs without touching the items in the front. The patients demonstrated also a 70% increase in grasp performance with these AR glasses. So according to researchers, while major costs and technical issues remain, this type of assistive technology could eventually become more practical for everyday use in the near future. So lots of access accessibility this week for us. What did you just say? I have no <laughs> idea. But apparently you can wear AR glasses and have low vision and reduce some of the collisions you may have in your environment and your grasp, you know, accuracy can increase. I love this story. As somebody with glasses, um, you know, I, I feel like we're at least semi-qualified to talk about this. Like, obviously, we don't, we don't live um, at... Such a disadvantage as, as some of the non-sighted folks, but I definitely like it sucks not being able to see as much as we can. 
That's almost there. Are, almost. Try yeah. it again. <laughs> All right. When you can't see, it sucks. So the fact that <laughs> the fact that uh, there is technology out there that is helping people who cannot see, um, people who are missing an entire sense, uh, or, or help me out here, Blake. I am so struggling. This is this is kind of interesting because I forgot to put this in the banner. I got to start writing stuff down. I you need just, to start writing I, stuff down. I forget stuff. Didn't you have that as like the best practice in the world, or whatever? Write shit down. Anyway. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. I did. Nick said it here. So, okay, I'm going to do an anecdote first, and then I'll talk a little bit about the glasses and how they're super awesome. But so I was at an art museum in Seattle recently, and I thought it was really, really awesome that they had a sign that was specifically for people with like low or no vision and a QR code that they could scan with their phone. And it would basically act as like it would give you a description of the painting, talk about the history of it and that kind of stuff. It was way too small for anybody with low vision or no vision to be able to see or navigate to. So I was wondering in my head, like, how were they, re- how was anybody, unless they were walking around with their phone, just like QR coding the entire time, actually able to, you know, see what they're, see what is, what they can see for one, and then use this kind of assistive technology that is out there. It's great that it's there. And something like this could help with that kind of stuff. It could allow you to experience things like an art museum that you may normally not get able be able to experience the same way that other people can. What is it? Is it like a is it like an auditory description of what's going on in the yeah? So it was it was so an auditory description of like the painting itself, and then kind of like the history of like the history of it, it like the meaning behind it, that kind of stuff. So it was like an all like giving you everything in one auditory tour, basically. Yeah. But but the point is that they there were these QR codes designed for people with low vision. Yes. But it just didn't seem like it was very accessible for them. Like you would literally have had to have just been having your phone out the entire time and, and hoping. hoping that you like got close enough that you saw it or noticed it was there. But something like this could help you maybe navigate your environment in a way that may direct you towards those kind of things. Because in this case, we're talking about like avoiding obstacles. Well, I could see in the future something like this with augmented reality glasses that maybe drive you towards specific items in your environment, right? right? So it will allow you to both like avoid issues, but also be able to enhance what you're seeing or hearing maybe even in this case. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I, I just love, I, there's been a lot of accessibility stories this week. Um, and just in general, there's a lot that I, I think there's a couple others that we didn't cover. Right. Wasn't there something else on the Slack? There might have been. Yes. There was actually, I can't, I, I'm going to get, like I'm going to actually now. get the, uh, the ailment wrong, but it was like a neck brace that allowed. Oh yes, that's what it was. He with Lou Gehrig's disease, to like to like get more functionality in their head back. So Lou I, Gehrig's, that's it. Lou Gehrig's, yeah. okay. Yeah, Which that was, was the other thing I was thinking of. Yeah, there's there's just been so much um, so much innovation around accessibility, and I I love that. Yeah, I, and I if just, anybody's in that space, I would love to talk to like an expert in yeah. like accessibility and product design or just accessibility in general. I'd love to have somebody on the show to talk about that kind of stuff. Yeah, I feel like I mean, like most of these, with the time that we give, the twenty minutes, if you're a one dollar sub, um, then we only have so much time to go over some of the highlight details. But I would there's sometimes I would like to get an insider's perspective, like when we had Woodrow on the show to talk about ergonomics and that kind of stuff. Um, and this is this is one area where I wish I knew more, had more intelligent things to say about it. Yeah, yeah, same here. Um, well, we can stumble through this, or we can move on to our last story. Yes, 
You want to move on to the last story let's, instead of stumbling through this? All right, let's go. Let's do it. Okay, so this one we don't have to worry about being qualified for because this is pretty insane all around. So Heathrow is one of the world's busiest airports. There's no doubt that that's true. So And, and that's exactly why climate activists plan to shut it down by flying drone flying drones too close this month. So a group called the Heathrow Pause has called for activists to create an exclusion zone around the airport on September 13th. If the group succeeds in stopping flights from taking off, it would disrupt tra- traffic at the seventh busiest airport by passenger volume on the planet, the one that's also in the single largest city source of carbon pollution in the UK. So the group feels it's worth risking arrests in the face of the climate crisis. And the group noted that in its manifesto that it's a crime against humanity and all life on Earth to support carbon-intensive infrastructure projects. So activists plan to infiltrate that space in the hopes of grounding flights due to unsafe conditions, emphasizing that it will not be flying their toy drones with it. They will not be flying their toy drones within flight paths. So in the next in the past year, people have shut down airports in Dubai, London, Newark, a whole bunch of other airports with drones for less drones for less. And the fact that only a tiny number of drones and tiny drones can be used to shut down some of the world's busiest airports is really highlighting a weakness of the aviation industry that climate activists are just going to actively exploit. So far, the group has four pilots who plan to fly drones and risk arrest. Risk, risk arrest. Words and, are hard. Yeah, it's they okay. are very hard. And they're asking for more people to join them. Oh, man. So this is, this is a really strange story to me. For a for more reasons than one but the biggest one is that it does i have to say whoever wrote this for gizmodo like i really appreciate their perspective on it because it is kind of odd that we have aviation systems that that span outside of the u.s like obviously internationally they can be kind of brought down by toy drones as people call them but just like drones that anybody can buy commercial drones yeah like like the the interesting thing to me is that we have put these no-fly zones up and these activists are planning to fly these drones just outside that zone right but concentrated in enough uh, quantity and at the right elevation it can still prove to be a uh, a hazard for these planes and so it is highlighting a weakness in these exclusion zones right so it's like or um it's almost like we need a larger uh, no fly zone outside of the airport. I mean, like, obviously that's the case here for sure. Yeah, I, I, that that ultimately is is what I'm I'm thinking. But then, what does that do for like? Not it, what does that do for the future of drones, right? And and not necessarily commercial drones, but the business uh, economy class drones that are still soon going to transport passengers from point A to point B transport meals from point A to point B, right? Are these one like are these drones and we've talked about like the infrastructure of drones and how they're going to integrate with cities um before, you know, like obviously emergency drones get priority, but then, you know, there's this whole network of of drones and how do they communicate with each other and stuff. I think ultimately what this says to me is maybe you can expand that exclusion zone and still play nice with like business commercial like not commercial but business economy um drones that fly within that but still outside of the like critical boundary you know almost like a a, a multifaceted 
um, layer where you have a no-fly zone for any commercial, uh, anything that you can pick up off the shelf, which is like, I don't know, 10, 10 miles or something. I don't know what the... I'm, I'm speaking just in general terms right now because I don't know what the uh, what the actual zones are, but you have 10 miles, right? And then let's say there's a five-mile radius in which... Um, you know, like the, the Uber drones or the McDonald's drones or whatever can fly within as long as they're communicating to the planes so that way they make way for the planes as they come in, you know, so that way that airspace is still semi-restricted. Um, but, you know, really, let's push that exclusion zone all the way out so that way, um, you know, I, I mean, look, I think the cause here is 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 a good one. I think climate change needs to be addressed and... I think there's that, but then there's also this whole critical infrastructure and, and how do we solve that problem too? So I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, you know, these protesters are wrong for flying within this. It's just interesting. It feels very dystopia that we can live in a world right now where we can literally shut down an airport with drones. Yeah. It just doesn't seem like it makes a whole lot of great sense, but I think it's another one of these cases where we continually run into that technology goes so much faster than legislation does or like than, than government does because um, i mean from everything you just described there's just a giant infrastructure problem i mean especially if we're gonna release so many different types of drones that are like from what you were describing i mean just it requires different classes of airspace to exist more than exists now uh, in order to make sure that it's safe for all those types of drones to fly and then how do you how do you interact within between those types of airspace? Because in the case of passengers that are not on commercial traveling aircraft, but we're talking about like, let's say the Lyft drone or the Uber drone that picks people up, takes them to another place that has to fly through various levels of airspace. Right. To, and now, so now you have all sorts of kind of issues that arise when you, when we're talking about that, which we've talked ad nauseum that automation can play some kind of component, but it just really depends on how quickly yeah how quickly that's evolved and all that kind of stuff and i do agree that it is a it's a good cause um but i think it is kind of a it scares me that one that they could so easily throw out of whack one of the most one of the busiest airports there are and uh, understandably they're not gonna be flying within flight paths but they could cause enough chaos that it's like a lot of you know i don't know traffic issues and stuff like that so that will suck for other people who maybe they have to travel yeah kind of stuff so it's it's a it's kind of a rock and a hard place but i think it ultimately from the human factors perspective if you will illuminates that there's just so much more work to be done and i think it has to be done in a better process than what we are typically are doing it right now through legislation to get these kind of to let technology and government catch up to each other and have to like ha- have advisors like people like Elon Musk who work with the government to help, you know, kind of push things forward or whatever it is across in a global scale. Yeah. Tough stuff, man. It's kind of a bummer to end on. Well, uh, what is it? Job security, my friend, job security. Potentially. Yeah. So this could, that's the fun part about this story is it could create a lot of different types of jobs. Yeah. I could imagine like, I don't think, this is my personal opinion, and I am not the most super informed person on AI or automation. But I think it's going to take a long time for 
for everything to catch up to where AI and automation can handle all of this kind of traffic and make the right make decisions that people are comfortable with a non-human not making. Yes, that made sense. Yeah. That made sense. All right. Well, you know, we don't have to end on a bummer note. Do you want to talk some Reddit stories? Let's Reddit questions? Do Reddit, it. Reddit stuff? All right. You know what time it is? It's Reddit time. It came from... It came from... That's right. It came from Reddit. Uh, this is the part of the show where we search all over Reddit to bring you, uh, you know, questions that the community has. This could be anything. Um, you know, this could be anywhere. This could be, We bring these things in from Slack. We bring these things in from email. We bring these things in from Reddit when people don't love us and send us emails and slacks. We've got them from Twitter a couple times. Oh, yes, we did get them from Twitter. As long as you write to us, we will. Uh... Oh, hey, look at that. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Policy violations. Nice. All right. So, got uh, yep, got them. Uh, anyway, yeah, so it's part This it came from Reddit. This is what we're doing here. All right, so uh, let's go ahead and get into the first one here. This one is from, uh, oh, geez, where'd it go? Uh, the Girly Engineer. This is uh, Anxiety During User Interviews. Uh, she goes on to write. I, I'm assuming she, but that may not be right. So we're just going to say they go on to write. Does anyone have experience? Uh, does anyone have experience nervousness, nervousness or anxiety during interactions with users? May that be usability studies, interviews, ideations, brainstorms. I'm relatively new to the UX world. I used to a, be a software engineer and always feel nervous a bit about or a bit anxious right before talking to a user or during the interview specifically when a user seems closed off or their answers are short. Uh, did you ever experience that? If so, what did you do to feel better prepared um, for does more experience? Does the feeling go away? What? What kind of grammar is this? Anyway, <laughs> it's very good. Very good I'm grammar. It. All right, well, let's get into this. So, um, all right, so we have a couple questions here. So, Blake, do you ever get nervous talking to users? Absolutely. You do? All the time. Okay. Why do you get nervous? Well, I, okay, so here we go. I've been doing, like, user interviews since I was in grad school because this was part of, you know, taking human factors methods classes. But even then, like just interviewing people for my first job with my like first real usability test um, or like ideation session, if you will, it was nerve wracking because it was not just, you know, an end user who in my in my line of work at the time was like somebody from the military. So that's a that's a very different type of user there. It's a very different type of person. You never know if it's going to be very relaxed or very, very strict or whatever it may be, but also like stakeholders. So people that are above even what you do, it could be different engineers or different just, you know, product stakeholders, anything. So I've definitely been really, really nervous before because if you're sitting there, like all eyes are on you, you've got like five people that may be sitting there and you're asking questions and maybe they don't understand the questions, maybe didn't word them well, or maybe they're, they're kind of closed off and they don't really answer the questions that that well don't give you thing any kind of like explanation so it can be super tough um i mean i've definitely experienced it but i have to say the the thing that they obviously are aware of it, it seems like from the their last set of questions is that just goes away with experience from my perspective because yeah. over time like one you get better at putting the materials together you you f you find ways to write more informed questions let's say you've been working for the same company for a while your user your knowledge about a user base is probably going to grow 
And so you're going to have more informed insights into kind of who they are, their ins and outs, what what are their pains, what do they really like, what's, what technology they're used to using, that kind of stuff. So you can almost identify with them a little bit more. Um, and then the biggest thing is just to, I th- or I think the thing that's paid off, paid off the most for me with doing any kind of user interviews is the introduction like set up well what you're going to talk about and the fact that i mean in our in my case anyway it's it's all about setting up the fact that one anything that you say i'm not here and will be held against you absolutely i'm not here to judge you about i'm just trying to understand the problem space that i work in and two like really the part like for especially for the positions that I hold now, it's like you're really the one person who's the advocate for a user. You're the person who's going to help and make sure that, you know, features that don't exist or processes that don't work potentially could get fixed or at least document them and get them in front of the right people. So I think kind of really setting up what it is you're doing, the expectation that you're not, you're not here to judge anybody and there's no real wrong answers and that you're basically the, the closest thing they can get to an user advocate is, best thing you can do and just practice yeah i mean like here's the thing for me i don't typically get nervous during user interviews um i think the only instance in which i do get nervous is when there is somebody more senior than me in the same space that understands the domain a lot better than i do because I feel like if I stop to ask questions that maybe they already understand, it's it's less a, a, a interaction with the users and more of an interaction with your peers. Like how how do you navigate that situation where there's somebody who knows so much more about the domain than you, uh, and you don't want to like slow down to basically ask questions that may already have answers to um, by the other people in the room, you know, other human factors folks in the room. If it's just one-on-one, it's very easy to go, okay, this is, I don't understand, like, you know, the whole, explain to them what you're doing, why you're there, why you're talking to them, uh, is very helpful. It goes a long way and say, you know, and saying, basically, I'm on your side. Look, you can't say anything, basically, that, that will hurt my feelings about the product. Like, I'm going to take this back. It's going to be, your name won't be attached to it, like... I'm your advocate, so go ahead and just lay it all on me, and and you know I'll try to do my best. Absolutely. So in that regard, I don't get nervous. It's it's more the interaction with other human factors folks that may or or just SMEs in general that may be working on the project. You know, resources that are available to you outside of that room that maybe you don't want to use the time to ask the person in the room who knows, you know, you know what I'm saying there? It's like that whole interaction of like, let's say, let's say Blake, you know a lot about podcasting and I'm asking another, I'm asking this person that podcasts, uh, how, what's your process like, you know, all these user questions. And I might hesitate to ask them like, what's it like going, you know, up in front of, uh, other people on YouTube and, and talking for an hour at a time. Right. Because I know you you have that experience. I can ask you later. Um, yeah, so may, maybe it's just this specific instance, but I, I also feel like this is the case in a lot of in a lot of times. So I've been in the situation. I know somebody who's definitely more senior than I am and is basically watching me do my job. Right. And they will know the answers to questions. I still think it's better for me personally and the quality of the answers that I've gotten out of people asking the okay, I'm an idiot here. I need you to explain like 
this concept that you just yeah, yeah, breeze yeah. by because ultimately one i've seen that make people more comfortable with me personally and then i've also gotten better answers because i'm able we're able to like go down a like line of thinking that i right. couldn't have done without asking the question does that make yeah, sense yeah 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 I, I do the same thing too i think that's when we're talking about nervousness in user interviews that's sure. the only instance in which it happens i like you uh, normally do ask those questions, even though there might be somebody who does know those answers. It does take a second to like get over that nervousness hump of like, oh yeah, they're are they going to think less of me, you know, professionally because I didn't know this going in. Uh, you know, there's all that stuff associated with it too. But I think once you get over that and you ask the questions, like you said, you get a lot more out of it. And so uh, that's that's really my only encounter with nervousness. I, I get more. Um, uh, ex excited, like it's a it's a nervous anxiety excitement because I'm about to learn a lot of things that I didn't know before, and there is sort of this like performance anxiety with I want to make sure I write down everything that like I won't remember outside of this room. Sure, sometimes yeah. there's constraints like NDAs that you can't take things out of that room, you can't write down or you know whatever. So like keep it in your head, and that's yeah. all you got. It's it's a it's a weird world, and that that's there's a lot of reasons to be anxious, but yeah, like Blake said, with experience, I think I think we can all get through it together. Absolutely. All right, we got time for one more. All right, so this one here is by uh, user seven seven eight eight nine nine one one, and they are feeling imposter syndrome so hard. How do you overcome it? Eggplant emoji. Just kidding. That part isn't in there. Blake added that later. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Content strike. All right, content strike on YouTube. Check that out. All right, so I got an amazing mid-level UX design offer at a really good company. I feel like I don't deserve it, and I'm so afraid I won't be good enough. How do I get over this feeling? Uh, Blake, how do you get over imposter syndrome? Don't. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that's going to be it for today. Let us know. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, let's talk about this. Let's talk about imposter syndrome. So for those of you who don't know what imposter syndrome is, uh, it is basically when you feel like you are not good enough to perform the job that you got hired for or uh, that you are not good enough um, to fulfill the role that you are basically filling. Yeah, it's kind of like you feel like you're fraud, but you're doing all the work yes. that's required of you. Yes. I don't know. I mean, I feel this all the time. Part of it is because like I've transitioned kind of to different portions of of work that I've done. So I've done like more traditional just research stuff i've moved into trying to do you know ui design and i've now kind of even transitioned into laying prototypes with code so it's like a consistent as i learn different stuff i try and push myself in terms of what i'm doing at work um so to some degree i feel like i'm always learning and i'm not like a senior level person even though i've been working for a little while but in this person's case in, or in their case or set of numbers case I would say that if you set of numbers case, if you got an what you feel like is an amazing job, congrats to you. You should feel good about that. I wouldn't walk in freaking out that you're not going to be able to hold your position because I mean, one, you've described that you got a mid level level job, so that means you have to have some sort of competency. Whether that's like you had a really dope portfolio that somebody helped you kind of like spot and put together or whatever. I mean, you were able to you know, get past all the wickets to get into a really good company. Um, and being afraid, I think, is super natural. You shouldn't be like, oh, I can just walk into this job and everything's super comfortable and I don't have to worry about anything. I'd say if you weren't uncomfortable, you should be maybe a little bit worried that you didn't take the right job. It's just not going to 
And he got an update there, Blake. Oh, that's not good. Another time would be great. Uh, um, so, I mean, how do you get over the feeling? Just do the best that you can and keep learning from the people around you. Because hopefully, if you're a mid-level de- designer, there's senior leadership there. There's people that are even juniors that you can learn from. You can learn from everybody. There you go. All right. Should we take it home? Let's do it. All right. Let's get out of here. All right. So that's going to be it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the stories this week. If you're a Patreon supporter, please stay tuned for that after show. we got some fun stuff to talk to you about. For the rest of you, you can join the discussion on our Slack or follow us all over our social media channels at 8Tractors Podcast. Be sure to email us at show at humanfactorscast.com. Uh, we do read all of those, so uh, send it our way, and, and we might even read it on the show if we like it enough. Uh, if you like what you hear, want to support the show, like I said earlier, you can leave us a review on your podcast medium of choice or consider supporting us on Patreon. Like I said, a uh, dollar a month, we can talk less for you. Less talking. Uh, less talking. Uh, and, of course, you can always reach us at our home on the web, humanfactorscast.com. Mr. Blake Arsdorf, thank you for hanging out with me today and talking about drones. Where can our listener... Listener, the one, one listener, the one listener, the numbers. Listening. Uh, where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about eggplant emojis? If you like to talk about eggplant emojis, you can find me at Nick underscore Rome all over the place. No, you guys can always find me at Don't Panic UX across all social media outlets. All social media outlets. Special thanks to everyone here who joined us on our special live YouTube stream. Uh, as for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Until next time, what happens? It depends. It depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.